0: I'm going to be reading from the Holman translation this morning, and I'm going to be reading from James 5, 1 through 12. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your silver and gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You stored up treasure in the last days. Look, look. The pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment.
1: So I'm gonna ask a question a number of times today. How do you behave when you're waiting for what you want? How do you behave when you're waiting for what you want? How do you wait? Waiting is really tough. Waiting is a really tough thing for us to do in life. Most of us are pretty impatient when it comes to waiting. In his book The Holy Longing, Ronald Rolheiser defines spirituality as what we do with the fires inside of us. He says it is what it is about how we channel our eros. Now eros is a Greek word and it's associated with passions, right? With our bodily passions. How do we channel our desires? I thought of it like this, we are we are all born a newborn baby, and we're born hungry. But we all wake up like a newborn baby too, hungry. Every day we wake up hungry. And we know that even when we get fed, no sooner are we fed than we hunger for a new thing. As soon as we get the thing we hunger for, we search for a new hunger. So when Ronald Rollheiser is describing what spirituality is, in other words, he is saying that it is what we do with our desires. Spirituality is everything that motivates the act of living itself. Spirituality is deciding what we really want and then deciding how to pursue what we really want. So spirituality is deciding what do I really want from life? This is why everybody's spiritual. Everybody practices spirituality. We are all deciding what do we really want and how am I going to pursue what I really want? How do we handle this red hot fire burning inside of us? And Rollheiser says, some of the stumbling blocks to expressing this passion are our naivete about the nature of spiritual energy. Our pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness. And we have a critical problem with balance. In other words, we just don't wait very well. We have a tough time waiting. Whether it is that we just don't understand what we really want, we haven't plumbed the depths of our desires, we haven't chosen a path, Whether it's that we're discontent with the path we've chosen, we seek distractions, we're restless, whatever it is, we have a critical problem with balance. And the problem that we have with waiting is a lot of us can wait for a short amount of time. And even some of us struggle with that. We get really impatient with the short waiting periods. But I'm talking and James is talking this morning about the long wait, the lifetime wait. The things you wait for that maybe never come to pass. The things that you sit and realize are not fulfilled inside of you. And you're going to spend your life dealing with some form of waiting. Now, to to share a story about this. um, Most of you in this room know my daughter, Lucy. And about six years ago, I got her permission to tell the story. About six years ago, when she was two or so. We noticed something different about our middle child. Actually, at first we thought Lucy was totally normal, but Amelia had been this prodigious child in terms of language and speech. She was speaking in full sentences at a really young age, and Lucy just wasn't like Amelia. And we thought, well, maybe Amelia was just different, right? And Lucy's normal. And we go to fill out the well child questionnaire that you get, you know, at Kaiser. You sit down and you fill it out. And we're realizing that she isn't checking a lot of these milestones. We talk to the doctor and she goes, oh, no, she's physically behind. She's behind with her speech. And so suddenly we go, oh, it's not that Amelia was so advanced. Lucy's actually behind. And she recommended that we visit a neurologist. So we see a neurologist. And the neurologist says, you should go see I don't even know all the specialist names, this specialist. We go see that specialist, they refer us. We play this ping pong game of seeing specialists after specialists, after specialists. Some of you are nodding because you know what this feels like. And we have been, I have been taking off early from work, coming in late, find appointments at OHSU. We're going all over town, over and over for, it felt like at least a year. And we, ha- we get to this final meeting and the drive up, Megan and I know what's gonna happen. We're hoping against hope that we'll have some diagnosis because Lucy is continuing to fall behind in all these measurements. We're starting to notice it being a problem. And we get up to this final appointment. They get in all of these people together and they basically all just say, well, there's something wrong with your daughter, but we don't know what. Lucy just gets tired more easily than everyone else. And so that is effectively Lucy's diagnosis for us now. She just gets tired. When somebody asks why, we have this little um, rolling chair. I never can call it a stroller. You can never call it a stroller if you ever see it. It's her chair. She has a rolling chair. And when every kid asks why she's in a stroller, we say, this is Lucy's chair, right? And she gets tired more easily than you. That's the diagnosis. It has required a lot of patience, and I know people have worse problems, but it has required a lot of patience as a parent to realize, nope, we can't go on a hike because that path will not fit Lucy's chair. It's too rocky. It doesn't work. Nope, we can't go on a long family bike ride because Lucy gets tired more easily. And adjusting our whole life and kind of hoping, realizing that I have just been hoping that one day I will wake up and it will just be gone. Right, that it will just have been like a figment of all of our imaginations, and Lucy will grow out of it somehow. And as she's getting older, we just in the last couple of weeks, she's said, I don't know why, but my stomach always hurts. I don't feel like eating this. I don't know why I don't feel like eating My stomach's hurting. And I'm going, well, it could just be an acute thing, but it's lasting for a long time. Are we seeing a development of said undiagnosed thing? Right. Our family is just simply having to wait. We are totally out of control of what's going on with Lucy. It has been a long exercise in patience, adaptation, flexibility, inclusion. How do we just live and adjust with this problem? Of course, I get really frustrated. I get really frustrated that we're not able to go on a hike. I get frustrated that I have to pull this chair out of the back of the car and open it up and walk her everywhere. My second grader in a stroller. That's what I say in my mind, right? And I'm frustrated with it because I haven't learned what God's trying to teach me on how to wait well with this. Sometimes I get angry. Sometimes I feel like she's holding me back. Sometimes the chair attracts a lot of attention and I just want it to go away. How do you behave when you're waiting for what you want? Do you even know what you want? Are you frustrated by something you don't even know what it is? So James' message for the church is this. He says, look. I'm actually talking to a group of people who have chosen what they really want. All of you, this is James speaking to the church, have chosen that you want to follow Jesus. Perhaps in this room, many of us have said, okay, I have have planted one flag. I know that I want to plant my desires on following Jesus. But then he says this, okay, you've got your desire picked out. You are going to need the patience of a farmer and a prophet. This is what the second half says. You are gonna need the patience of a farmer and a prophet. Now what does that patience look like? That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. Because James wants everybody in the church to be whole. He wants them to be integrated. We've called the series A Handbook for Wholeness. He wants them to have a complete centering and anchoring on the person of Jesus so that we can actually have peace with our day, so we can rest when things are undone, so we can lament injustice in the knowledge of coming justice, so that we can celebrate amid destruction and find peace among division. This is the upside down world that Jesus anchors us into. We have a superpower as Christians, that we've been given if we can accept it and learn how to wait well. But it's the impatience that keeps us from being able to celebrate amid destruction, from finding peace amidst division. It's our impatience. And he says, if we are patient with the rocky soil of this world, like humble true farmers, as we cultivate the patch of earth we've been given, then we will find something far greater than we've ever had, a power far greater than we've ever been able to tap into before. Timothy Gombas is a biblical scholar and teacher in the Midwest. Uh, he has a, a um, I would call it a great podcast, but I've only listened to one episode so far. I picked up a book of his I've liked it so far. That's my recommendation. And he had a bit where he was talking about the theology of U2. He's probably a Gen Xer if I had to guess. And he was talking about Bono, who is, as as many of us know, is a Christian. And he was talking about the journey of their discography. Okay, so he was talking about... uh, what their songs tell a story of as you look through album to album. And he, he looks at their first album, which is called, uh, well, actually, I don't know if it's the first album, but one of their early 80s albums, Joshua Tree. And he says, this was like pious righteousness. All the songs were big, operatic, dramatic rock songs about the problems of the world and the righteous path that we should all be called into to tackle it. And then we hit the 90s and their album, Acton Baby, pop. They go through all these different albums in the 90s. And he goes, then they descend into just the trash of life and they have a lyric in one of the songs that says, we're looking for the baby Jesus under the trash. Looking for the baby Jesus under the trash. Some of the lyrics in this album go like this, if beauty is truth and surgery the fountain of youth, what am I to do? Have I got the gifts to get me through the gates of that mansion? If O.J. is more than a drink and a Big Mac bigger than you think, and perfume is an obsession and talk shows are confession. So he's making an observation of the culture of this time. He's saying if this is if this is what there is, what am I to do? They're just swimming in the the mess, the mud of our everyday culture and saying there's got to be more than this. How do you live amidst the reality of life? And then he says they move then into their hit, al- their hit album of the early aughts, All That You Can't Leave Behind, and the, the song, we all know this song, from that album Beautiful Day. Just blast this song out. There's lots of great lyrics in the song. It's worth a listen on your way home or later today. But basically the moral is this. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. That's every day of your life is a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. It doesn't matter what's going on, is Bono's message. If you miss the beauty of the sacred moment you've been given right at this very moment in this very room. If you miss that, you're missing what it means to live spiritually. What are you waiting for? experience, and as Gamba says, enjoy the reign of the Lord Jesus right now. In fact, he says being a Christian is enjoying the reign of the Lord Jesus. This is why we said over and over and we've attempted to practice it as hard as it can be, there are no miserable Christians. That is one of the most conflicting phrases for me because I can be a depressive, melancholy type, right? I like to listen to sad folk music while I write sermons, right? I had to play you 2 this week to, to rev me up in my house because being a Christian is enjoying the reign of Jesus. It's getting a beat going. It's saying right now is a special moment. How do you behave when you're waiting for what you want? Can I do this right now? The answer is yes. And if you view that every moment is sacred, in fact, every person is sacred in some way, it changes a lot of things. At the end of my street is a growing, tarped homeless camp, okay? Right at the end of the street where we live. And I have found myself telling my neighbor about the developments that I see as I go around the corner each morning. And I said, oh my gosh, there was, a new a new one built with tarps all over, set up on the hill right we were, right by the 205 highway. And I said, they carved steps with a shovel in the dirt to make steps up to it. And he looked at me and he goes, he's an ER doctor that used to be at, um, at Portland Adventist, which is right down the street. And he goes, goes that's pretty awesome. Like, he was like, that's pretty darn awesome. And I like looked at him for a second and I was like, Actually, it is kind of awesome. Like, It's pretty creative, like pretty audacious, like everybody's sacred. Everything is sacred. If I can't enjoy the fact that somebody had like the balls to carve out this thing and like just put stake their claim on the side of a hill down the street from me and at least respect that on some level, despite whatever judgment lies deep in my heart. If I can't do that, I'm missing out on something about life. Real celebration is not ignoring the pain, but is brandishing our best weapon to fight the pain. We fight death with life as Christians. We don't celebrate in blind indulgence. I think there's a tendency in this this culture, in this city, somebody like you and I, that when we celebrate, it feels like we're, we have to be guilty a little bit in order to be righteous, right? Like I can celebrate, but I have to just admit that I also have like a little bit of guilt that I have and somebody else doesn't have. And I'm conscious of that. I want to show you that. So I'm going to say it and then let's like celebrate. We don't celebrate though in blind indulgence. We celebrate because there's something worth celebrating. And if there's nothing worth celebrating, what will we pull everybody into out of the destruction? Where will people come out of the destruction into if there's no feast at the table? This is precisely what Jesus promises us. That we all are created in the image of God to one day feast with him. The destination is Celebration. And so then we can actually feel compassion more because our desire is to draw all people along with us into a celebration that can't be destroyed. That's a great way to wait. That's a much better way to wait than to be miserable and self-focused. How do you behave when you're waiting? Well, James, in verse one of chapter five, Uh, looks at the rich person. And we can tell that this person is destined for misery. But what I can also tell you about the rich person is that probably the rich person has been fighting some sense of misery their whole life. And they've been fighting it by becoming rich. They've been fighting that misery by taking what they can to cover it up. And that misery helps nobody. That misery is an enemy of patience. The miserable person is not going to be able to give anyone anything. And I think that cosmic hopelessness that is ever more pervasive, I mean, we have like higher than ever teen mental health crisis right now, The world, as young people see it, maybe is not worth living into. And that cosmic hopelessness is the seed of selfishness. If this life is all there is, then I need to take what I can get. This is what James says to those people. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because there is a misery that is coming to you. Your wealth has rotten and moths have eaten your clothes. He's giving a vision. And he's saying, if this life is all there is and all you can do is take what you can get, know that at a spiritual level, you will still be miserable. Bono's lyric said this, if beauty is truth and surgery the fountain of youth, what am I to do? If all we can do is fighting things by taking what we can find and getting what we can in this life, what are we to do? If beauty is truth and the surgery the fountain of youth, yeah. I'll I'll do it one more time for you, Donnie. If beauty is truth and surgery the fountain of youth, what am I to do? Because. Because, because those things are all going to pass by. Those things are all going to be eaten by moths, as James would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is what James is, is talking about. And if we remember last week at the end of chapter 4, he talks about the wealthy people planning what they're going to do. We'll go to this city and this city and make a profit here and there. And he says, you are but a mist. Let me give you a vision, a divine vision. You are but a mist. This is the vision. This is the end times vision that James is giving. See, he has to give an eschatological vision, which is a seminary word for having the end in view. This whole passage is the time in James where we get to a place where he says, let me bust it open for you and give you a timeline that's gonna blow your mind. I've gotta put the end in view for you to get you into perspective. You're but a mist. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. If you only knew, he's saying. Your wealth has rotten, then moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. I mean, this is a grisly vision. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So James has to give this long view to get things into perspective, because guess what? He's looking actually at Christians in this passage. And he's saying, you've forgotten the grand scheme of things. And to give us an example of how to act, the church an example of how to act, he has to give us a good guy and a bad guy. This happens a lot in the Bible. We get the good guy, we get the bad guy. Well, the bad guy's pretty obvious here. This is the unjust rich, those who have made their riches by taking advantage of weakness, by taking advantage of opportunities to oppress people and serve themselves over others. Put it a different way because some of us might say, oh, that's that's not me. This is for those who have focused on their own journey and arrival instead of caring and thinking about the journey and the arrival of the sacred community of humanity. Am I concerned about my own journey and my arrival? Or do I spend time thinking about myself as part of the human community and how we will bring them, what my role is to bring them along in the journey to celebrate the Feast of the Table? This is a message for those that seek to satisfy their holy longings with what they can take in this world. And he says the outcome for that will be misery. How do you behave when you're waiting for what you want? James Gamble here is that a gospel story of the end times, a vision will change, will help change your desire for this life. So he paints this drama of this good guy and this bad guy. And he says, listen to a story and let me see if I can help convict you of your desires and what you're really living for. Maybe if I put the end in view for you, you can change your ways. Maybe if I can show you an oppressive, wicked, rich farmer. And his prideful impatience, who pretends to be God, then you can see yourself in that. Maybe if I show you the oppressed, righteous, poor farmer that lives in humble patience, then you have a model in how you can trust in God. Now, since James is trying to tackle this within the church, let's just go a little bit deeper and check ourselves. We may not identify with the oppressive rich, but as I've said a few times in this series, wealth is always measured as those above us. None of us consider ourselves wealthy. It's always the person above me that's wealthy, right? But how do you have an experience? We had this experience just the other night where we were having dinner with some friends who are trying to get into a house. Now, our narrative, we've got a pot in our driveway. We're trying to find a place in town. Our narrative is a little bit like woe is me, right? We want to find a house, but real estate's crazy in Portland. And man, if we were just a little bit wealthier, we would be able to find this place. And we're having this dinner conversation and they're talking about how they're renting and they just can't get into a place. And I'm just going to myself, oh my gosh, we own it. I can't, I don't even want to talk about the fact that we own our house. It's like, I don't even want to talk about it with you. Because clearly I have the thing you want, and I've been sitting here in discontent in the waiting because I always measure it as not having as much as the person above me. I'm not wealthy. No one considers themselves wealthy. So that may be one way that we don't identify. But I also want us to look at the heart The heart that gets somebody into the place of being an oppressively wealthy person. Somebody who's taking advantage of the poor. What motivates them? It is a self-focus to claw their way out of the misery of this life by taking, manipulating, maneuvering, or stealing. Anything that we can get away with when no one else is looking that will get us ahead. And I think a lot of that discontentment is fueled by impatience. We're tired of waiting for God. And so we're going to take matters into our own hands. So if we can learn a holy patience, if we can learn the patience of farmers and prophets, perhaps we will find a key to joy. I want to make another comment on wealth hopefully as quickly as I can, because it's easy to attack the wealthy as oppressive rich people, right? To just say anybody with money is clearly oppressed somebody to get there. Anybody with money is bad, right? Especially in our current power dynamic thinking where it's all about those with power and those without power. And we build every ideology around that. This city especially is one that likes to attack the wealthy. James is not an enemy of wealth. And as Christians, we should not be an enemy of wealth. He is an enemy of wealth that sees wealth as a form of advancement instead of an appointment to responsibility. Let me say that again. James is saying wealth is not a form of self-advancement. Wealth is an appointment to responsibility. So if you live to desire to be more wealthy, realize that the wealth that you may receive is God appointing you into a position of responsibility. It is not a vehicle for self-advancement. Biblical commentator Kurt Richardson on his commentary on James says, Within the circle of the Christian community, a clear voice must constantly call the wealthy to greater responsibility for the well-being of the average laborer. You can go ahead and cry socialism. That's not what he's saying. He's saying on a human level, what wealth is for is to enable and help and grow the community into greater health. (laughs) Wealth does not advance us, but points us to a role of leadership and stewardship of the sacred souls of this planet. So why do you want to become rich? The only valid biblical reason James gives is the desire to be responsible and care for others, particularly the poor and the needy. Now, this kind of made me think about something wild, right? Why didn't when Jesus died and rose again and became and presented himself as king of the universe and ascended to the throne of God in Acts 1, Why didn't he just take his reign and rule to perfect the world at that moment? Why didn't he just say, boom, everything's just, everything's fair, everything's good, I'm king of the universe. Why instead did he appoint 12 guys to start a movement that would spread across thousands of years to begin to reform, to share the gospel, to be a community that looked like him, why did he decide to do it that way? Why did he put the weight of his glory? Why did he rest the responsibility of his kingship into 12 people that grew a church as co-regents, as co-rulers along with him in this broken world? Why did he do it that way? We don't know. But we know he did it that way, and we know it has taken generations and generations and generations of failures and successes and learning and growing that has expanded to millions of men and women across time. That's for some reason, for some way, this is the way, in the words of the Mandalorian. This is the way. This is the way that Christianity works. This waiting is how he's teaching and growing and actually bringing his community to the celebration feast. This is how he's chosen to do it. So what this means then is it's not up to us to satisfy our longings, but we've been entrusted instead to care for the world and he will satisfy us in that process. So now if I'm waiting, I am not, the waiting is not me missing an opportunity to take what I want. The waiting is not me accepting that my lot is just to be miserable. My waiting is actually an act of trusting that he will be faithful. So if you ask yourself, how do I satisfy this void today, the nagging feeling in the deepest part of me that is discontent, the sense of lack, the sense that is not, not, is all right with the world. How do I do that? But even deeper, how do I sense and how do I satisfy the sense that not all is right with us, with human beings, with me? I have to first admit that it is not up me to satisfy all of those answers. I simply don't have them, and I don't have a way to fix them all. We can't fix ourselves alone. Okay, let's go to the good guy model. What does he say in verse seven? Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, an example, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Okay, we got two images here. The faithful, those who wait, those who are patient, are like farmers that wait for the land to yield its valuable crop. And they are like the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, we are to behave like humble, righteous farmers and like Israel's prophets. If any of you have read about the prophets, that's not an exciting thing to realize that we have to be like. But what do the spring rains refer to here? Do they, do they refer to getting what I want? What, what does it say? Wait for the land to yield. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient, Samford, because the Lord's coming is near. What is, the, what is the connection there? The connection is from the rains, the autumn and spring rains, to bring forth a valuable crop, which is the Lord's coming. The valuable crop that the spring rains that I'm trusting God will bring is not me getting everything I want. But when I read that text, the first time I read it, I said, oh, I just need to be patient because God will bring a season where he will bring the rains and then my valuable crop will be mine. Prosperity gospel, right? Then I will get what I've always wanted in this life. That's how I read that text when I just read it quickly. But that's not what the valuable crop is. The valuable crop is the Lord's coming. Sorry to disappoint you. What can we learn about the coming of the Lord? Well, there's two reasons that this is a far more valuable crop than getting what you want. Because remember, as soon as we get what we want, we always hunger for something new. So the second coming of the Lord is going to give us things far more transcendent, far more expansive, far more mind-blowing than that, things we could never get on our own. And the first one, the first blessing that's obvious in this text is that it's going to bring complete justice. All will be right for all in the world. All will be just. Because God hears the voices of the oppressed, Think of the the message to the poor in the church that have been oppressed, that there will be a day where the voice that has been crying out of my son or my daughter or my father who died a premature death, working the fields, being oppressed, whatever, this injustice, this nagging injustice that they would have. Think in our situation of things that happened that were not just in our life, that do not have an ending, that's a happy ending, and we just have to live with it this whole life. God, James is saying God promises that there will be justice, that the cries are not in vain. But this same justice can also be really bad news. Before, on the other side of it, woe to you, rich people! Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on. Amos uh, was a patient farmer prophet. And I'll, I'll bet you that James was riffing off of Amos when he wrote this. And some commentators have said, oh, this is for the rich people outside the church that were oppressing Christians. But if you read Amos, you can tell it's not the case because Amos is looking straight at Israel and he's saying it's you, it's you guys. You thought you got a free pass as the people of Israel, to do whatever you want because you're God's chosen people, but you've broken his covenant. You're mistreating the poor. I won't read the whole passage here, but he writes a few things in Amos 8, that just, just zero in them. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? What kind of heart posture is that? I grew up Seventh-day Adventist. We had a hard sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. There was a time-scale table printed on the fridge with the minute of sunset on birthdays. I would play video games up to the minute, right? And then it would have to go off. And then the minute it happened on Saturday night, back it, right? What kind of heart posture is that? That's a heart posture in saying, this Sabbath thing is a prison for me. God, you've trapped me in this system that I just want to get out of as soon as I can, right? When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? What I really care about is self advancement. I do the moral, righteous thing because it makes me look good in the eyes of others, but what I really care about is myself. He's saying that's a problem, and it's going to end in misery when the second coming of the Lord happens, even though you're Israel. Because you haven't figured it out. You haven't honored the covenant. Your heart is just dying for more of you. He's saying you're skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. When Jesus turns the tables in the temple in the New Testament, he's pulling an Amos, right? James here is pulling an Amos. Jesus said things like this in Luke 6, but woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. That's kind of haunting, right? But James is giving us a larger view, a more comprehensive perspective. And he's saying, long for true justice. Live for righteousness regardless of what it gives you. Fight against misery with hope and realize there is a different kind of riches in this life. Jesus in Revelation gives his words to Laodicea. He says this, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me Gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and the eyes solve, and I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Ron prayed in this prayer, Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. So it's a different thing that we're looking for. When we have our desire, then we can see that the patience is a trusting, hopeful patience that the way of Jesus will depend on Jesus to make all things right. It's not up to us. And yet, we have a way to live regardless of how it serves us or the consequences around us. We stick to the process over the product. We've talked about this over and over. Process over product thinking. It's not about what I get, it's how I act day in, day out, day in, day out, and then I will receive the gift. The second piece about the coming day of the Lord shows us that at some point, not just complete justice, though that will be a deep longing of us if we live in the way of Jesus. But even more than that, our deepest longings will be satisfied. In Christian cliche, the God shaped hole, right, will be filled, right? The void, the nagging hunger that we have, one day will be completely filled. And you just have to trust that sometimes in this life. <laughs> But that is the valuable crop of the second coming. No farmer is planting without hoping that there will be food, something that can feed his body, something that will make him feel satisfied and whole, something that he can then provide for the community, sell and provide for others in his family. And God is saying the truest version of that valuable crop will be satisfied in the second coming. You have to have this wider perspective in order to wait. Randy Alcorn writes this. He's written a lot about heaven. I don't know if this is from that book, but he says, when earth becomes our heaven, when we see God's blessings as being primarily immediate and temporal, we lose sight of who we are why we are here, and what awaits us beyond the horizons of this world. Guys, this is so hard. Day to day this week, how many times were you like, I have a heaven perspective. I have an end times vision of my life. I put it this way. I I often say, well, I'm 37. I've been talking a lot about approaching like this midlife, right? Okay, in three years, I'm going to be 40. It's not going to blindside me. I'm preparing for it right now, right? I'm not a midlife if I have an eternal perspective. I'm like way infant level. This is just the beginning. But I think about my whole life in terms of this enclosed little capsule. I don't live with a pers- heaven perspective day to day. What would it look like to live my life going, I don't need, uh, maybe I will never learn how to sail in this life. I got way more time to do that later right? Or whatever it's going to look like. We don't know exactly. But the point is that those things, the things when you approach to this stage of life, it is so like universal. I was talking to a friend the other day. It's so universal to have these feelings of limits and go, wow, I'm just probably never going to do that. And part of accepting that is trusting that God has the best in mind for you and that he will be true to his word, that there is riches that await us beyond the horizon of this world. Take that in deep, like stoke that fire. Probably don't have time to go over too much of this, but um, if you're not familiar with the second coming of the Lord, talk to me afterwards. There's, There's a lot there. Uh, just in quick bullet points. No one knows the day or the hour when it's gonna come. It's a secret to mankind. The long delay that it has must not beget our despair or forgetfulness, what we just talked about. We should not live in misery. Humanity must use the time given to prepare for the coming of the king. And when the time comes, this got me, we must be found in fellowship in the day of the Lord. We should be farming together. We should be waiting together. We should be celebrating together. And it is not an excuse for laziness that God is gonna take care of all of it. It is fuel for hope to keep going when even in all of the doing, we don't get to where we wanted to get to. Uh, I, I, uh, in college, went to make a documentary because I used to make films and The uh, guy I talked to had been in Africa for, I emailed a guy who lived there as a mission worker for a long time. He said, John, he goes, read all the books, do all the stuff. It's all really good. Just remember, you won't save Africa. Now, it seems silly to even tell somebody, but in like a 22-year-old mind, the grandiose visions of what my film is going to do to the world, it actually was pretty poignant. It was like, you're not going to save Africa. He's a Christian, right? He's not saying don't have hope. He's saying, open Jesus and go do the best you can. And then sleep at night. Like, don't beat yourself up over it. It's just a different way of thinking. Ezra Klein uh, has a podcast I listen to quite a bit. And he talks a lot. He's a New York Times um, columnist. And he had this article titled, Your Kids Aren't Doomed. And he said, the most popular question he has is, should I have kids given the climate change that we all face? And then second, should I have kids knowing they will contribute to the climate crisis that we all face? And he continues, he says, to not have children owing to fears over climate change is growing and impacting fertility rates quicker than any preceding trend in the field of fertility decline. So if you don't think it's a big deal, He's saying it's a big deal. People are not having kids because of their vision of the future. He says this, so this is what's ironic. The people who have devoted their lives to combating climate change keep having children. Isn't that wild? The people who are most invested in it, who see it, are saying, let's get kids on this. Because he says to bring a child into the world is an act of hope. That's the same posture that we should have as Christians. We have hope in the divine spirit given into the human spirit through Jesus Christ. So we can celebrate the human spirit, but what we celebrate is Jesus' spirit within us as those who accept us and the weight of that glory, that we can live that out in the world and be agents of compassion and mercy. He died to change us so that we can wait in hope and trust, in celebration. So just a, a, a one takeaway for us as we go about our week. How do I behave when I'm waiting? Was the question. How do I behave when I'm waiting? I was talking with a friend uh, Friday morning, and we were talking about waiting, and he says, I think that Jesus uses so many farming metaphors because he's trying to get us into a tempo for what waiting looks like. Because it's really slow to watch grass grow. If I was a farmer out in my field planting the wheat and then just sitting there, it would feel like eternity that I'm having to wait. God works at a slow pace. Good things come slowly. Yeast takes time to rise in bread. Grapes take time to turn into wine. The best things in life happen slowly. And God says, this is the tempo in which I teach. I teach you in the waiting. In the waiting, we go through the tension of saying, I'm discontent. I want to go look here. I want to go look there. I was talking to a friend this week. He said, I went, I saw this new opportunity. I looked at maybe houses, a job, and then I came back from all of it, and I said, yeah, none of that's going to work. I'm actually really grateful for what I have. In the process of waiting and pushing and prodding and exploring, God taught him to appreciate what he had. Because I think God's no's are usually not no's. They are not yet, not this way, or not that I've got something better. Right, Not yet, not this way, or not that. I've got something better for you. So our prayer can be, God, I am patient, like the man who believed. God, I believe, help me in my unbelief. God, I'm I'm patient, but help me in my impatience. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word. Thank you that even as I preach your word and uh, that it convicts me, how to live day to day, waiting well. Pray for this community. I pray that uh, that you would bind us together, call us together, because the waiting is so much better together. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen.